electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. And hi, everybody. Wow, indeed. We're going to get to all of those names in just a minute. But here's what's ahead this hour. Profoundly consequential. That's what some strategists say we should expect from Fed Chair Powell in his Jackson Hole speech tomorrow morning. Is more inflation on the way? We'll dig into that with bond yields on the rise. Plus, getting technical, Bank of America has four stocks whose chart is telling them that a breakout is ahead. The strategist behind that call joins us with his names. And Palantir's CEO calls out Silicon Valley, betting on the airport comeback and the car stock outperforming Tesla. That's all ahead today, but we begin with another day of jaw-dropping moves, especially in technology, Dom Chu. I'm still trying to get used to, Kelly, this idea of speaking of the NASDAQ composite in five-digit terms, right? 11,000 handle. That's what we're at right now. The Nasdaq Composite, as you can see here, the outperformer up almost 1.5% on an otherwise flattish day for the Dow anyway. The S&P 500 up close to 1% still, though. Record highs, gold star there for the Nasdaq, and a gold star here for the S&P 500 as well. Record highs for those particular indices. A big driving force, as Kelly put out there, behind that move in the Nasdaq is what's happening with cloud computing-type stocks. This particular ETF Ticker CLOU is a billion-dollar ETF that tracks many cloud-related companies. From the pandemic lows back in March, this stock is now up 95% in that span. You contrast that to a a roughly 59 to 60% move in the S&P. Very respectable, but cloud computing, really the momentum trade right now, we'll see if it can stick. It's gone a long way in a very short amount of time. And then the stock of the day, within everything else that's going on in retail, Dick's Sporting Goods continuing that trend up 14% of announcing outsized digital e-commerce sales nearly tripling last quarter their e-commerce sales over the year ago period there. And by the way, this particular company, check this out. Since the pandemic lows, it's up about 300% just in that time. So talk about a COVID pandemic stock. We think about Zoom. We think about those names. Dick's Sporting Goods is one of them. And Kelly, by the way, That's a much bigger move from the lows than both Apple and Amazon. I'll send things back over to you. Dom, I'll give you that that's impressive, but Salesforce is up 26%. How big is the company now? So it's in that one day move now makes it worth about a quarter of a trillion dollars, nearly $250 billion. And just to put that in perspective with that particular trade at Salesforce, Salesforce, $250 billion valuation, Oracle, the software giant. Right. $175 $175 billion. Wow, valuation and Workday right up nearly 10%, Adobe up nearly 10%. We'll have more on that later, but just some impressive moves this afternoon. Dom, thanks. And today's record highs in the market overall come ahead of a key speech in the morning by Fed Chair Jerome Powell tomorrow. The speech is already being called consequential and game changing by some on Wall Street. That's because the Fed could announce or hint at new measures to push inflation higher, marking a major policy change for the Fed. Joining me now to discuss how investors should prepare for this, Kathy Jones is chief fixed income strategist at Charles Schwab. 
John Augustine is chief investment officer at Huntington Private Bank. And Peter Bookvar's head has already exploded. He's the chief investment officer at Bleakley Advisory <laughs> Group and a CNBC contributor. Peter, do you think this is a, a bad idea or a terrible one? Or might they win you over if they can get this right? Well, both bad and terrible. Uh, well, first of all, the Fed sort of codified this whole symmetry thing. They've been saying in every single FOMC statement this year that they, they've put in the word symmetry. So it's already there. So I, I think Powell, if he talks about it, will just wrap it in a way of this would be the trigger for them to raise interest rates. But just think about I always like to replace the word inflation with cost of living. So we have the Fed rooting for a higher cost of living. We have double-digit unemployment right now in this country. The last thing we need is higher inflation. And imagine if it does actually happen. I find it hard to believe that longer-term interest rates, because the short end will be pinned by the Fed, that longer-term interest rates will just remain sitting where they are. The world's bond markets are just not going to sit by idly yeah. and let the central banks be successful in generating higher inflation. All right, so let's keep this going as we show the 10-year uh, yield, Kathy, which is over 0.7% again. So we've come up about 20, you know, a little less than 20 basis points over the last couple of weeks. Listen, what Peter's laying out is not, doesn't sound great, but neither does deflation. I mean, you, if they can't get kind of higher inflation, we're stuck in this deflationary situation, you could have negative bond yields. I don't think anybody wants that. You know, you face a cost of living shock that way as well, depending on how you make your living, especially if you're on a fixed income or trying to draw income from investment security. So I, I, which to you is, is the lesser of two evils? Well, I think uh, deflation is, is worse than inflation simply because the Fed doesn't have no central bank has great tools to fight <coughs> deflation. They have great tools to fight inflation. And so they have a higher comfort level with inflation nudging up. My problem with this whole notion of average inflation targeting or raising the inflation target, it's, a, it's all well and good to say that, but the Fed hasn't been successful in hitting 2% over the last 12 years for more than a, you know, a couple of months at a time. So what I would be curious about is what would they actually be doing to make that happen other than allowing uh, the zero interest rate policy to continue for a while, hoping the economy rebounds on a employment comes down enough to generate inflation, but that's a multi-year process from here. Yeah. And John, let me bring you in on that. And that's where this really hits home for investors. You know, we're already starting to get glimpses and leaks and hints of what we're going to hear in the morning. But if the Fed does basically say we're not raising interest rates for five years, no matter what happens with the economy, right? We saw them kind of go through this period of false starts with the recovery last time around. This time around, it sounds like they're going to say, we are not raising interest rates. We don't care. To Peter's point, we don't care what the CPI does, the inflation number. We don't care what the jobs, what the unemployment level is. We are not going to raise rates. Then, John, what do investors do with that? Do they just start piling in on the stock market? And is that why we're starting to see some pretty outsized gains in individual movers and record highs here? It is. It's all connected we would say so what what we would say is come in the middle kind of between peter and kathy and say yeah the fed would like some higher inflation we understand that they're not getting that the markets don't believe bond market doesn't believe they're going to get that in the future we do worry about a search for yield that's going on globally we understand that's going on. We're trying to do it prudently, just as other investment shops are trying to do it prudently. We don't think it's taken stocks up too far. Actually, 
using dividend discounting models, stocks can go higher from here because of these low rates. Will they get, though, inflation and bond yields to go up at the same time? Bond yields, we would say, are anchored by Europe right now. Mm. So what we worry about is inflation goes up, bond yields don't go up, or vice versa. they got to go up together. That's what we're worried about for investors. All right. So, Peter, what would your advice be to investors? Look, I think we all know what it looks like if you think there is real inflation coming. Obviously, bonds sell off to some extent. Stocks sell off, some of them worse than others. I mean, we can kind of get into that gold. We, but, but, I mean, what happens if they change this target? People go, okay, I get it. You're going to let it go a little bit hotter. But they don't really believe, to Kathy's point, that we're going to see sustained inflation, at least not for quite some time. How, what do you do in that investing environment? You go into stocks, pile into stocks? Well, I already think we're seeing the early signs of inflation. We're, we're seeing that in used car prices. We're seeing that in lumber prices. Toll Brothers, in response to higher lumber prices, said we're raising prices aggressively. Aggressively was their word. We're seeing the implied inflation rate in the 10-year tips is seven basis points from the highest level since May 2019. We have gold prices near $2,000. We have the dollar that's weaker. The inflation is already beginning. Now, it's not an event. It's going to be a process, but it's already there. And you get a vaccine and you get a rush of demand. Well, considering all the supply chains that have been turned upside down, the supply side's not going to be able to respond that quickly. So from an investing standpoint, I'd be focusing on the beaten up commodity names, energy stocks, agriculture, industrial metals. I would even look at the bank stocks that will benefit from a steeper yield curve if I'm correct that inflation is going to be even higher than what the Fed is shooting for. So fascinating. And that very clearly lays it out. And then for people who think that's not going to happen, they do the exact opposite. And that's what makes the market. Everything else is this muddling through. Guys, thank you all. Really appreciate it. It's going to be an interesting day and time uh, if the Fed makes this big change. Kathy Jones, John Augustine, and Peter Bookvar. And joining us on the exchange tomorrow in a first on CNBC interview, Dallas Fed President Robert Kaplan. We look forward to hearing his remarks in the wake of hearing from Fed President Powell tomorrow morning. Meantime, we have a news alert in the bond market right now. It was a five-year note up for auction with everything going on today. Rick Santelli, how'd it go? Wow, this was like a textbook superlative auction. I gave it an A+. Nobody in this auction is worrying about inflation. 51 billion five-year notes, record amount, priced at a yield of 0.298, exactly one basis point higher than the point. 288, which was the all-time low in July for the last auction. All the metrics are just stellar, stellar. Uh, 2.71 bid to cover, that's the second best in three and a half years. Uh, 66.2 on indirects, that's basically a two-year best. Uh, 15.9 on directs is super solid. And when you look at how much the dealers took, 17.8%, that's a three-year best. So this is just Great from top to bottom. It really sets the standard. But what it may really tell us is, is that the sell-off we've experienced off and on since the 13th of August, the 30-year auction, well, many investors just don't believe it's going to have legs. Kelly, back to you. Rick, just to be clear, so we've had this whole discussion about the inflation trade and the Fed, and it might be coming. And you turn around and tell me, with that coming up tomorrow morning, we had a stellar, superb, great from top to bottom auction for five-year treasuries in which not a single investor out there would seem to care because otherwise it would make no sense to own those treasuries for the next five years when they're, right. but they're apparently thing, not going right. to raise rates one thing and, we and want hope to for say, higher though, inflation. One thing we want to say, this is the mid part of the curve. It's more closely aligned with what the Fed's doing on short rates. If the inflation curve really kicks up, 10s and especially 30s are going to experience it the most. So really, this 
maturity is a good maturity to buy if you think that even if inflation's coming, the Fed's going to try to be lower for longer. Fair enough. Very well put. Rick, thank you, sir. Rick Santelli with the latest on that five-year auction for us. And coming up, the list of job cuts and furloughs in the airline industry is growing. We'll look at why October is so crucial and if there's any glimmer of more government assistance on the way. Speaking of airlines, consumers may not be flying, but investors seem to be betting that airports will be filled again. And it's not the airline stocks they're betting on, we'll explain. And getting technical, Bank of America combed through the S&P and found four names whose charts point to a breakout, they say. They'll join us ahead. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. American Airlines threatening 19,000 job cuts if it doesn't get additional federal help. Now, White House Chief of Staff Meadows telling Politico that the president could take executive action to avoid airline layoffs. But not everyone in the industry thinks that's a good idea. Phil LeBeau is here with the very latest. Phil? And Kelly, it's not giving a boost to the airline stocks. I know you're showing them right there, but put them up again and you'll see that they're all down between one and a half and two and a half percent today. They did not get a bump at all off these comments from the White House Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows. That's because people are saying, what's going to happen on October 1st? We know the airlines are preparing for job cuts because the current round of aid expires on October 1st. First of all, let's be clear here. There are enough Democrats, Republicans, as well as the Trump administration they all agreed that there should be a new round of aid. So there's no contention there. The question is, how do you do it? The White House is considering an executive order, but that might mean telling the Treasury Department, we'll make some money available for the airlines to borrow. That is not what the flight attendants or others in the airline industry want. They want a new CARES Act number two that would award $25 billion, give $25 billion, 70% of it would be in the form of a grant that would not have to be repaid far better economically for the airlines, and here's the reason why. Look at American. It's Q2 debt. At the end of the second quarter, $40 billion. Do you think American wants to go back and borrow another $3 billion in order to pay employees that it may not need come October 1st? Same thing with Delta. It's debt at the end of the second quarter, $30 billion. Nobody wants to do these layoffs within the airline industry, but this industry has to become smaller, and that's because the demand is simply not there. Take a look at the passenger levels. They're down anywhere between 67 and 74 percent. It is not growing, Kelly. Yesterday it was down 75 percent, and it's likely to stay at this level at least for the next couple of months, and then you go into the first quarter, which is the slowest time of year for the airline. So it has to become a smaller airline. The question becomes, if you're going to keep these employees on the payroll, which everybody would love, somebody's going to have to pay for that. And where is that money going to come from without a stimulus package? That's a big question. 
Yeah, uh, Phil, thank you. Phil LeBeau with the latest there. And with Main Street reeling, one thing Wall Street can do to help create jobs is to dig up funding for infrastructure projects. You might think, after everything Phil just said, that airport renovations wouldn't be a priority right now. Air service is down sharply from last year, and many airports have lost carriers. But funding for airport projects through the debt markets is actually picking up. With me now for more on that is Gary Hall. He is partner and head of investment banking at Siebert Williams Shank & Company. Gary, it's good to have you. You've done a number of these airport deals lately. Why are investors interested? You know, Kelly, I guess, uh, first of all, investors are still uh, incurring a tremendous amount of cash. Inflows back to bond funds are really high. Coupon payments and, and bonds are maturing to give uh, investors uh, the, the, the thrust to, to, to reinvest. Um, but they're chasing yield, and the airport sector, more than most, uh, uh, has more yield um, in our municipal market. So we've seen um, a slightly uptick in the transportation sector uh, as a whole, wow. where we're slightly up than we were year over year in 2019. Airports are slightly down, but we're uh, since the DFW deal that we uh, we did in July, we said that we've seen the market open up significantly, and we have about three billion dollars of airport deals done since then. Wow! So to be clear, the deal you mentioned, Dallas Fort Worth, was the first airline deal since the pandemic began. That was done in July. Since then, uh, there's also been a bond offering about a billion dollars for uh, LAX. So. These are the biggest airports in the country. Gary, what happens to some of the smaller airports, the ones that might service enormous regions but not a lot of population? Are they going to be left out here? You know, I don't know if they're going to be left out, Kelly, but I can tell you the process that we have to undertake with airport credits and all credits is a little different post-COVID than it's been before. We're seeing investors ask not only a lot of questions about the operating metrics of these enterprises, but delving into subjective factors. For example, uh, we've been on a number of calls where investors want to know, you know, what has been the responsiveness of governments to, to COVID? Uh, have they opened up the, the economy too soon? Uh, are governments prepared to make uh, the tough decisions in making cost-cutting measures uh, or staff reductions? So these subjective factors are some are, are things that we're preparing on our issuer clients to be able to answer and giving confidence yeah. that uh, they have the political will to make the tough decisions, and whether it be an airport or a water sewer or a general obligation. Problem. And you've also done work. Uh, you've done an issuance for the Chicago Transit Authority for the Regional Transit Authority of New Orleans. So is this because these maturities are long enough that bond investors say, okay, it's five or it's ten years, so by then the economy is going to be back to normal, I'll be fine, and I don't think. You know, just yesterday we were talking about J.P. Morgan in New York City is going to allow employees to work permanently from home uh, for some of the time. And they said one benefit of this was that it would lighten the load on public transit. Well, I'm sure the public transit system doesn't necessarily see that as a benefit right now. Uh, so my point to you is how long do investors have to get their money back here? Well, a couple of things. So first, uh, we, we are pricing the, the Chicago Transit uh, Authority deal tomorrow. So uh, we do not want to steal the thunder and say that it's done yet. Uh, but we, we've had a, a bevy of investor calls and think that we're going to uh, have a tremendous amount of demand there. You know, keep in mind, these are 30-year bets for the most part. Wow. Um, and so when investors are looking to park money for 30 years, uh, these essential services will be back at some point. 
Um, and these are monopolistic assets for governments. And so uh, at some point, we're going to see a, a, a resumption of, of, of travel in airports and, and ridership on, on major transit systems. And investors know that, especially for these large metropolitan areas. Yeah, that is a great point. On a 30-year time horizon, maybe you feel a little bit more comfortable uh, going out on the ledge uh, for the comeback yeah, in these right. major markets. Gary, it's great to have you. Thank you, sir, for your time. Appreciate it. Gary Thank Hall you. is with Siebert Williams and Shank. Still ahead, as the U.S. continues to make strides in the search for a COVID vaccine, China says it's already started deploying one. We're going to take you inside the country's vaccine factory. Plus, as Palantir opens its books to the investing world, the CEO is opening up about his feelings with some strong words for Silicon Valley. Those details and the car stock that's outperforming Tesla this year. Stay with us. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's check on markets right now where the Dow's only up 18 points. It had the big day yesterday, remember, but different picture today. It's technology that is absolutely leading the way. Like I said, Dow up 21, but the S&P's up 28 or 8 tenths of 1% right now, and the Nasdaq is up 1.5%, 177 points. Look at the sectors behind me. We are back to clearly having technology in the tech-heavy sectors in the leadership with gains of Two in communication services, uh, nearly 3%. But remember, that one includes a lot of the tech players. On the other side of the story, we're back to having energy in the bottom spot, utilities, real estate all selling off as well, which is interesting as rates have crept up a little bit higher. But they're off the highs after that five-year bond auction. Here are some of the individual movers. And we have Roku up 12% today after being initiated with a buy over at City. They talk about strong account growth and rising economic value per account. Roku, also one of the most searched tickers on CNBC.com today. Shares of Moderna also higher after phase one data showed older adults responding to their COVID vaccine just as well as younger ones. The company said there were no serious side effects. Moderna shares are up about 6.5% as a result. Shares of Nordstrom are lower, though, after missing on the top and bottom line. Their net sales fell 53% from a year earlier because of store closures. Nordstrom down more than 5% today. And we will close with shares of Netflix, which are soaring today. I'm pays for their best day in over a year, up nearly 12 percent on not a ton of news, frankly. But there are a lot of tech names that are levitating today, most primarily the cloud names after Salesforce earnings. Uh, But again, Netflix up 11 and a half percent has continued to climb throughout the session steadily higher. That has also been a theme today. Let's get over to Sue Herrera now for our CNBC News update. Sue. Thanks so much, Kelly. And here's what's happening at this hour, everyone. 
The University of Alabama reports 531 confirmed cases of COVID-19 on campus since classes resumed on August 19th. That is the city of Tuscaloosa closes bars for the next two weeks. A new lawsuit in the crash that killed Kobe Bryant and eight others. The company that operated the helicopter has filed a cross complaint against two air traffic controllers. The suit alleges the crash was the result of, quote, a series of erroneous acts and or omissions, end quote. And take a look at this, a dramatic scene off the coast of Sardinia as a burning yacht sinks below the surface of the Mediterranean. 17 people were rescued, that's according to Italy's Coast Guard, after they abandoned that vessel for a smaller boat. That is amazing. Down she goes. Wow. You are up to date, Kel. No word yet on what caused that fire. We'll yeah. keep you posted. Yikes. Back to you. Please do. Sue, thank you very much. Sue Herrera. While the race for a vaccine continues here at home, China has already started deploying one to the public. Our Eunice Yun is live in Beijing with the very latest on their efforts. Eunice? Thanks so much, Kelly. Well, essential workers and staff at state-owned firms are getting injected under an urgent use protocol. Uh, Sinovac, which is one of the vaccine makers, is uh, hopeful that it has a candidate that's going to be available soon, so much so that it's built a factory right here in Beijing solely dedicated to the coronavirus vaccine. we got to look inside. If China gets its way, this facility in Beijing will be among the first to produce vaccines to ward off the coronavirus. Sinovac built this factory in a matter of months with the goal of shipping 300 million doses a year. The company believes it's on track to start mass production as early as the end of this year. Uh, it's brand new, yeah. The vaccine, called Coronavac, is based on a traditional method using an inactivated virus to get the body's immune system to kill off the real virus. This type of technology is mature and has been proved to be uh, useful, to be effective among different kinds of vaccines. NASDAQ listed Sinovac as one of six vaccines globally in final stage clinical trials. Half the contenders are Chinese. Sinopharm has priced its vaccines at $142. CanSino isn't on the list, but is working with China's military and has a patent from Beijing. The Chinese vaccines are being tested in the public, too, on medical workers and volunteers at state firms. Sinovac believes it couldn't have ramped up so quickly without government fast-track approvals, subsidies, and other support. These labs are empty now, but they're soon going to be filled with technicians testing the coronavirus vaccine. Preparing for mass production at a moment's notice. And Kelly, Sinovac is listed on the NASDAQ, but its shares have been suspended for well over a year because of a boardroom battle. So if investors are interested in the company, they're still going to have to wait for a while. Well, and everyone's interested in whether this is effective and just how China was able to do it. Eunice, thanks very much for peeking back, peeling back the curtain a little bit, I should say. Eunice Yoon in Beijing for us. Coming up, stakeholder capitalism versus shareholder capitalism. Palantir CEO calls out his Silicon Valley peers. Neo's unstoppable rally and Apple still believes in the Big Apple. That's all ahead in Rapid Fire. The exchange is back in two. Welcome back. Let's catch you up on a couple stories that should be on your radar today. It is time for Rapid Fire. And here to break down the headlines are Leslie Picker, Brian Sullivan, and Julia Borston. 
Welcome, one and all. And we got to start with Palantir, the enigmatic software technology firm filing to go public through a direct listing. And we're learning more about them from this filing, especially CEO Alex Karp's view on Silicon Valley, though we had a sense of them uh, before. But in, in this letter to investors released along with the filing, Karp criticized the quote-unquote engineering elite in Silicon Valley, saying they don't know more than others about society or justice. He said, our company was founded in Silicon Valley, but we seem to share fewer and fewer of the technology sector's values and commitments. Julia, this is an awkward thing for the technology industry, which probably doesn't want to be treated as if it is a monolith that has certain values that the rest of the country may or may not share, especially as they're under more criticism from regulators these days. Absolutely. But there is definitely a point here that Alex Karp is making that he does not want to be grouped into to the category of tech companies that's under attack by regulators. He says that he that they turn down opportunities to sell, collect or mine data. He's saying they're not Facebook. They're not Google uh, really throwing darts at both of those company uh, uh, those companies and also making the point that they are choosing not to work with China. That's a choice they made. That's a risk factor in their S1. And at the same time, they say that they are gonna, committed to working with the U.S. government. So really trying to set themselves apart uh, remember, it's only been a couple of weeks, Kelly, since the CEOs of all those tech giants testified in Capitol Hill. Yeah, in the very unmemorable, I had hoped it would be very memorable, but the, the Zoom technology, Leslie, I mean, it was like, it was a dud. The whole thing was a dud. But yeah. anyway, do you think he's going to succeed, Alex Karp, in, in setting himself apart? I mean, in a way, I feel like he doesn't even have to try. They're basically a government contractor. They get a little over half the revenue from commercial uh, customers. But we all think of them as being very close with the U.S. government, whereas most of the technology companies otherwise that work with the government have to apologize for it. Right. Well, it's interesting. You bring up a good point. The fact that uh, a large portion of Silicon Valley is, uh, you know, they don't see the government as an enemy per se, but uh, the threat of regulation is real for them. Whereas, you know, with Palantir, uh, the government is one of their biggest clients. Uh, and so I think, you know, it's something that I don't think they're at the same kind of risk to additional government regulation as maybe the rest of Silicon Valley is. Uh, but they certainly have other risk factors that people are looking at. Uh, for one, the fact that their their customer concentration uh, is is significant. Uh, that's a significant risk factor. And then certain governance controls uh, with regard to this company is something that investors are also paying attention to. But, you know, they still have that growth. They still have that predictability yeah. in their revenue flow like traditional software companies do. Brian, people are looking through the, the share structure that Leslie referenced. They have, I think, class A, class B, and class F with variable votes for sh uh, per share. But yeah, it's, it's a complicated one. It is. And just be careful when they go public. You may love the company, but watch out for that structure. Three classes of shares. I mean, people get criticized for two classes of shares. They've got three classes of shares, which, as I understand it, Leslie probably knows more about it than I do basically says that Peter Thiel, who's one of the founders, by the way, he's been in a bunch of IPOs lately. He's just going to get richer and richer. And a few of the other founders, that they are able to maintain control even if they sell stock because it allows them to maintain a certain threshold. They can sell to a point, but That's still right. control, I think it's 49.9% of the company. So I would describe the, the Class F shares, what they're calling them, as funky. F for funky. Just play, make note of this. <laughs> That's right. We've seen three. We've even seen four classes of shares before. Uh, but to my knowledge, we haven't really seen this variable voting, which allows them to sell shares and still maintain uh, significant voting rights uh, as long as they hold a certain threshold um, of economic rights in the company. So, you know, with Snap, we saw no vote shares. Uh, we've seen 
four classes of shares in certain other companies <laughs> going public. But this kind of takes it uh, to a new level that enables the three founders to sell and not uh, risk diminishing any of their yeah, voting power. We'll, we'll be learning a lot more about Palantir in the weeks ahead to a point. As we said, they're pretty secretive. Uh, but to me, guys, the stock of the day is Salesforce. Let's put it up, show what's going on there. The newest member of the Dow, by the way, it comes in on Monday. Too bad it wasn't already in there. I think the Dow would be up another 300 points today. That's what Paul Eamon, my producer, told me. Anyway, they put up a stunning quarter last night, but the stock price reaction to me is extraordinary. Salesforce is up 26% today. This is a company now worth over $250 billion. Yes. This is not a small company. The CEO, Mark Benioff, was on Mad Money with Jim Cramer last night. He said the earnings are a testament to the idea of stakeholder capitalism that the Business Roundtable put forth last year. Take a listen. This is a victory for stakeholder capitalism because I think you know that we did a great job for our shareholders this quarter, but we also did a great job for our stakeholders as well. And this is a moment when we need to be thinking not just about how to serve all of our customers, but also how to take care of our communities because they are in so much pain. Julia, stakeholder, shareholder, potato, potato, whatever you want to call it, their revenue was up 29% on the quarter. I mean, that is just, and by the way, we're getting some breaking news from Dow Jones that Salesforce has still notified some of its staff, Julia, of job cuts. So again, in very impressive top line performance, not unaffected by COVID. But the, to me, the story is the stock price reaction, which is just enormous. Absolutely. But I, I wouldn't overlook what Mark Benioff said about its stakeholders and this idea that they're not just serving, serving their shareholders. They're also committed to helping their employees, their customers, and also the communities in which they work. Benioff has really been supporting this idea and trying to spread this idea that companies can do well by doing good. And I think we're starting to hear this a lot, especially from startups, whether they're B Corps or just have some sort of social and environmental purpose beyond just generating money, generating returns for their investors. Yeah, Brian, what do you make of it? Well, I think it's, it's a little bit odd timing that we're talking about stakeholder capitalism and using all these fancy buzzwords when we get headlines from Dow Jones that there might be layoff coming at the company. So it's going to be a smaller salesforce.com, I guess. i got to wait and get more details on those layoffs. Listen, companies have to adjust their employee work count all the time. I, I certainly get that. But, you know, Mark Benioff, obviously incredible guy, super genius in business, uh, has done well, but he's also good at sort of the marketing side of his own company with words like stakeholder capitalism. And by the way, he owns 29.5 million shares of Salesforce. So based on today's stock price, my calculations tell me he's worth uh, a lot, which I think is <laughs> maybe over six, $6 billion now. So that, that's stakeholder capitalism for you. That's a lot of steaks you can buy. They're delicious. <laughs> we'll move on. But I, I think and we'll have more on this in Power Lunch. I mean, the moves in some of these tech stocks today, I tell you, some, it's an, it, they're big. These are big moves. Netflix is up for no reason. But let's, speaking of which, actually, it's a good pivot to talk about NEO, uh, which is a stock on a tear. And it's the Chinese electric vehicle maker that recently got not one but two upgrades. Today, it's Morgan Stanley. They bumped up the rating and price target, said NEO is much more financially competitive thanks to a funding injection from China's regional government. Their price target, $20.50 a share. Yesterday, UBS upgraded NEO to neutral from sell and also raised its price target, about $16.30 a share. So if you thought Tesla was on a tear this year with its 161% gain, now it's NEO. They're up more than 430% over the past three months. Again, that's over the past three months. 
uh, to be clear. But, Leslie, pretty extraordinary stuff. And now, as we know, anything EV-related, whether it's a SPAC or a stock or you name it, is off to the races Yeah, finally we found a company that's actually outperforming Tesla, as yeah. you mentioned. Uh, but what I would say about those analyst reports is if you had a sell rating on the stock and it's up, you know, 5x over the last three months, uh, you know, going to neutral, you have to wonder, you know, how much better it has to be before you get, you know, an outperform rating. Uh, I think a lot of the concerns surrounding NEO had to do with their balance sheet and liquidity, uh, concerns surrounding uh, concerns surrounding their liquidity. And so they show that they were able to go to the capital markets, they were able to raise money. And now some of those those headline risks surrounding their balance sheet have, I guess, been attenuated, at least from the, the perspective yeah. of these analysts. Brian, it's interesting. I mean, there is some kind of virtue, right, in being the guy who says, yeah, I had a sell rating. Yeah, the stock's up, but I don't think it makes any sense. I mean, we're not seeing a lot of that on Wall Street yet. Not that that would be the first place we see it. But you got to wonder if sometimes the analyst note should just say investors love it. You know, I mean, if they think it's because they short up the balance sheet, fine. But sometimes the rationale is just, look, the stock's flying. That's it. We said on Fast Money with Tesla. You, you, can't, you can't make sense of it. You just say it's a great company, cool company run by a, a genius who's, who's got the thing. I mean, maybe the analyst report on Neo should just say you're buying promise, right? <laughs> with Nikola and these, you're, that's what you're doing. You're buying promise and hope that these cars or these trucks are going to work out. By the way, and Neo, I just talked about Benioff and his language. Neo, they use all the right buzzwords. Battery as a service, holistic servicing, <laughs> you know, a place of abundant joy. That's how they describe the cockpits of their car. By the way, the EC6, it's a nice looking car. It looks like the model, Tesla's Model Y and the Mazda 6 had a kid and it would look like the EC6. So you're, buy, you're, you're buying promise on Neo. I just want NEO to get bought by Oracle so I can say NEO went to the Oracle. That's a Matrix joke. Yeah, I've been, uh, my brother's been explaining a lot of Matrix references to me, even though I'm the one who saw the movie first, but apparently I just didn't remember enough of the lingo to be literate in today's world. Battery as a service, that's the first time I've heard that, Brian, but it's clearly not going to be the last. Uh, finally, we've got to talk about the nope. big Apple and its future. The future of all of these big cities has been a huge talking point lately. Uh, clearly, New York... Uh, or I should say Apple got Jerry Seinfeld's memo because the tech giant is reportedly in negotiations to expand office space at 11 Penn Plaza. Uh, at least earlier this year, they're expanding by 60,000 square feet. Facebook and Amazon have also been bargain hunting for Manhattan real estate, especially given that asking rents in Manhattan, Manhattan dropped below $700 a square foot, their lowest level since 2011, according to CBRE. Julie, I actually want to ask you about this because a lot of the companies that we're talking about um, I wonder if, are they being opportunistic? Is it just, I mean, does anyone, I mean, look, it seems obvious that companies like this are going to do business in New York City for a long, long time. But you, I go back to the J.P. Morgan story yesterday. I mean, how often are the employees going into the office? Maybe they might live a couple states over because they can do that now. It just, it still feels like there's a big change afoot. Well, Kelly, I think they're op absolutely being opportunistic. These are companies that expect to continue to grow their employee base. And even if their employees only come into the office a couple days a week, or maybe Facebook has suggested they would have some employees work remotely and all gathered together, you know, certain times a year or several times a year. There is a huge opportunity here, though, to have office space, lock in that office space at a time when the rents have declined dramatically. 
three, four years from now, there's a lot of hope that New York will be back, maybe not to exactly what it was, but something else very exciting, very appealing, especially for young people uh, who are the kind of people that companies like Apple and Facebook are going to want to hire. Leslie? Yeah, I mean, it's a big bet on uh, a big potential bet, we should say, on New York City uh, commercial real estate, which I think has a lot of the commercial real estate people saying, people saying, you know, this is the place to be. It will still be the place to be. Regardless of what the future looks like, people are hoping for some sort of a hybrid, even if you can work from home a bit, come into the office for a bit. But it's clear that at least Apple believes that that kind of camaraderie here uh, on the East Coast is, yeah. is going to be important. for We got to go, Brian. Forward. But Don Peebles was not so sanguine. Yeah, listen, you know, I think if I was going to buy an apartment in Manhattan, let's say it costs a million for sale right now, I'd go in and offer the owner 500000 and negotiate from there. If you're a bottom picker, now's the time. If you're a Leslie picker, maybe now's the time as well because she lives in Manhattan. I miss all of you. I'd like to give, I would like to give Tyler Matheson a real hug at some point, and I know that I will again, so I miss all of you. Well, if he allows it, then yes. Uh, no, we, we miss you guys all, too. When it's too. safe. Yeah. <laughs> we appreciate you joining us for Rapid Fire today. That's a wrap. Leslie Picker, Brian Sullivan, and Julia Borston. Coming up, we're getting technical with four charts that suggest a breakout. The names are next. Remember, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. We're back in a couple. Welcome back to The Exchange. With the market setting new highs seemingly every day, there are concerns that stocks are overbought. But Bank of America is still finding value and says four blue chip names are poised to break out right now. Joining me is Stephen Stutmeyer. He's chief equity technical strategist at Bank of America Securities. Stephen, I'm very curious. So let's go through these one by one and start with Deer. Sure. I mean, Deer is a fantastic example of a big base breakout that spans about Two and a half years. So the stock cleared some resistance. And when you look at the chart pattern itself, it says, you know, Deer should continue to rally with potential upside to 230 to 245, 246, and an ultimate base objective somewhere in the, in the 260s. So we believe in that huge base on Deer as long as the stock stays above this, uh, this support range yeah. or the breakout point around 184 to 172. So we really like the longer term setup on deer. I like what that implies maybe about the U.S. economy, a $50 uh, move to that ultimate point you're talking about from here. Let's move on to Disney, which, of course, has been struggling during the pandemic. But what do the charts tell you about that one? Yes, I mean, Disney is very interesting, too, because uh, in June, actually, uh, we, we put out some charts on Disney suggesting that it looked like it was going to stabilize and go higher. And right after that, it went a little bit lower, but didn't invalidate its technical setup. So after, after earnings, the stock gapped up. And for the last couple of weeks, it actually formed a technical pattern called a bull flag. We broke out of that bull flag. So the bull flag is a continuation pattern. So what we think happens on Disney, as long as it stays above 128 to 126, we think it goes to 147 to 148 based on that technical pattern of the bull flag. All right. So about a $15 move from here. Your other stocks are Morgan Stanley and Union Pacific. I wonder if you'd indulge me in the last in the time that I have with you to say whether you think the market overall has plenty of room to run or not. I mean, that's the huge question on everyone's minds with all of these stocks seemingly breaking out today. Right. Um, I mean, I think longer term, the market's in good shape. You know, we had a recession reset this year. 
And I think um, we are still in a larger secular bull market trend with plenty of upside. Um, you know, the, the risks we have right now are seasonality. And, um, you know, t- September, October tend to be weaker. We've got the election, which tends to show even weaker seasonality in September, October. But you typically get a nice year-end rally. Um, and breadth is narrowed here. Uh, if you look at advanced decline lines, percentage of stocks about 200-day moving averages. So I think we got to just stick with things that look good. And that's mm-hmm. why we focused on these four stocks in addition to, you know, some of the growth names that continue to lead here, yeah. um, which you guys mentioned on their previous segment. <laughs> exactly. We talk about them every segment. So appreciate you joining us. <laughs> talk about some other names, Stephen, and the market overall. Pleasure. Again, he likes Dear Disney, Morgan Stanley, and Union Pacific here. Stephen Suttmeyer with Bank of America Securities. Coming up, my next guest says she fears the COVID crisis could set back women's economic equity for decades. She's here next with the big numbers and what needs to happen to make society more resilient to these shocks going forward. Forward. Today is Women's Equality Day, and 100 years after gaining the right to vote, American women passed another milestone earlier this year, accounting for more than half of the nation's non-farm labor force. That was just before the start of the pandemic. But the future is murky now, with school closures and increasing family obligations leading to fears a lot of women will drop out of the workforce. My next guest, in fact, says this crisis could set economic equity for women back decades. For more, let's welcome in economist Heather Boucher. She's CEO of the Washington Center for Equitable Growth and author of Finding Time, The Economics of Work-Life Conflict. She's also a former economic advisor to Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. Heather, it's great to have you here. And I mean, I think your book title kind of says it all, The Economics of Work-Life Conflict. What are we going to see happen this year? Well, I mean, I'm glad that you started off this segment with the enormous achievements of women in terms of achieving parity in terms of the, their participation in the labor force prior to the coronavirus crisis. But this crisis and the crisis of care that has ensued with schools closed, with daycares closed, with families being unable to uh, find ways to care for children and for others while they have to work, This is really going to make it hard for millions of women and other caregivers to fully participate in the labor market. And that's going to have an impact on family incomes. Sure. And again, a lot of families are facing the choice, okay, if one parent steps back, which one? And whose career can we either most afford to give up or most trust will be there when we come back? It's really difficult. Companies you said are including Salesforce, Pepsi, Uber, and Pinterest have signed a pledge stand up for working parents to offer more flexibility and resources. I know here CNBC has just boosted its offerings as well. Is it enough? Is it to make, enough to make a material difference? Well, it certainly helps, right? And it's certainly important. So the extent to which firms are providing support, the extent to which we get Congress to make sure that everybody has paid sick days and paid family leave so that they can take time off to care, um, you know, addressing um, school closures, all of this can help. But I think at the end of the day, the enormous stress on families, both families that are trying to have um, parents telecommute from home, but trying to do that with little kids at home or also homeschooling, but also those that are out there in the workforce and don't have some place for their children to go that's safe and enriching during the day. Um, I do think that this burden, given what we know, is most likely to fall on women. Yeah. And Heather, here's what's interesting to me. There's the short-term effect in which this is a giant nightmare for everybody. But there's the longer-term thinking where they say, well, maybe my life shouldn't be structured this way. And thanks to technology now, maybe it doesn't have to be. 
there's more gig work available. There's technology. I can work from home part of the week. My husband and I can each go into the office half a week. We can have our kids at home. We can basically have them do school from home because we realize it's not that hard. So is it possible that this is the apex of us ever perhaps seeing women more than half the workforce? Or do you think that those numbers remain constant, but the nature of the work changes? Well, I do think that we're likely to see more women going part-time and dropping out. And I just I really want to emphasize that this is an issue right now in 2020, you know, as we're sort of getting at, you know, at the start of the school year. But this is an issue that's going to follow us for a really long time, for years into the future, because the decisions that families are making right now on whose career to put on hold, who to sort of step back, and it could even be just not even, not necessarily stepping back in terms of hours, but in terms of taking on more responsibility. Mm-hmm. You know, that worker who six months ago was like, well, I'm going to go for that promotion is now like, oh, I've also got a homeschool. I'm not going to do that. This is going to have a long-term effect on women's economic progress. And I do think it will, it will, um, it will set them back, unfortunately. And that is why we really need policies that can support working parents and make it easier for them. Anyone in particular you'd mention quickly before we go? I think a lot of it's about childcare. It's about access to, to safe childcare that families can use during this crisis and beyond. Yeah, no, that's certainly what it comes down to, uh, as we're realizing. Heather, again, thanks so much for joining us today, especially today. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you, Kelly. Heather Boucher with the Washington Center for Equitable Growth. And that does it for The Exchange today, but there is a whole lot more coming up on Power Lunch. The battles in the Big Apple continue with restaurant owners calling the lack of a reopening plan unacceptable. Two of them join us live ahead. I'll join Tyler Matheson after this quick break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.